Hey everybody, I'm Eric Tornberg, co-founder, partner, Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is an episode of Venture Stories, where we deep dive on topics relating to tech and business with some of the world's leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to the Village Global Podcast Venture Stories. I'm here with Jack Altman of Lattice and Keith Raboy of Coastal Avengers. How's it going? Great. Pleasure to be here. It's delightful. We are here on a historic low for the crypto universe, and we were just talking about it a bit. Keith, one of your most recent investments was Bitwise. Tell us a little bit about why you did that and broadly where you see the crypto world right now. Yeah, so Bitwise is basically creating a Vanguard or EFT uh, product for all cryptocurrencies. And the thesis behind the company is that it's unclear whether any one currency is going to dominate and be a monopoly uh, and that there's probably multiple currencies and that someone who wants exposure to crypto and believes that crypto is a real wave should invest in a basket of crypto, just like one would invest prudently in a basket of public company equities and instead of cherry picking a particular stock. And so that's the hypothesis. After about May of last year, Bitcoin hasn't represented more than about 50 or 55% of the sort of the value of cryptocurrency. And that, that is the kind of the why now answer to the question of why this would be a good company. Where are you bullish and where are you bearish in, uh, in the crypto conversation? Well, I think in the long term, I'm still pretty bullish. I'm bearish about a lot of the alternative coins, certainly bearish on ICOs, bearish on Ripple. I think there's just a lot of fiction going on and pure speculation, which is fine. I mean, people speculate on at casinos, they speculate in the NFL, they speculate on public you know, equities when they buy a stock. So there's nothing wrong inherently with speculation, but confusing speculation and value creation is a mistake. And what's the, the bull case is you think that everything will be decentralized in, in the future or that Bitcoin will become gold or there will be a, sort of a, you know, what's the I don't, bull case? I don't think the bull case has been crisply articulated by anybody because I don't think the currency bull case makes a lot of sense. We can talk about why. I think the, the bull case is sort of that there's a lot of smart people, talented people spending a lot of devoting a lot of time and attention to energies and their personal abilities to creating something on a, on a base of primitives, really. And that generally speaking in the history of technology, where a lot of talented people devote a lot of time and energy to one area, it creates breakthroughs. Mm-hmm. Jack, before we get into Lattice and people management, the focus of this show, sprinkle some of your crypto thoughts. <laughs> So I was just talking to someone about this yesterday. The way I have kind of thought about it is it's as though there's this like, imagine if you had this glowing orb in your hands, right? And you could point this thing and levitate anything that you wanted to. And you were like, oh my God, I have a glowing orb and I can levitate stuff. That's awesome. How much would somebody come up and be willing to pay you? Like, would they pay you a billion dollars? Would they pay you $10 billion? Like, it's doing something pretty cool. I don't know how to make money off of it, but it's doing something cool, Right. right? And so you also would even think, if I buy this thing, maybe I can't figure out how to make money from that orb, but like the next guy is going to buy it from me. <laughs> and so until, until crypto has like a real use case that's making a lot of money, I think people are looking at it and saying it does something really cool. And either, you know, the speculators are saying the next person's going to buy it. Some people really believe and they're the ones building and they're in it for the long haul. And they're like, I know they have an idea in their mind of what it's going to do. But that is like the analogy that I, that I still think of it as. And so like, you know, the dollars going in versus sort of like, the quote unquote dollars coming out or like mm-hmm. the value coming out is still right. still off. And you could look at sort of like 
you know, the sort of innovation cycles. And you could say, well, really, this is just the installation phase and we haven't yet seen the tech deploy. And so actually, you know, a trillion dollars in is not that much compared to what's coming out. But so far to me, it looks like a glowing orb that everybody is imagining it's going to do a lot. And we're waiting for somebody to figure out how to make a lot of money from it. You were at Teespring and you could have started a company in any space. Why Lattice and why HR Importance? Yeah, so, uh, and Teespring's where I, where I got to really meet Keith because he was on the board there and he spent, spent a good amount of time with us. I think he, he taught the team a ton about management, actually. And so for me, my day job was business development and corporate development, and, and I did really enjoy that stuff. But the part of my job I liked the most, especially as we sort of went from, you know, 20 to 100 to 300 people and, and on, was the people management stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really liked watching people grow and getting to see people move into new roles. And I realized that the, this huge lever that you have in an organization is the quality of management and the quality of the people um, and making people happy. So like, a, you know, a, a highly engaged and focused employee versus one who really doesn't care and see what's in it for them is hugely disparate. And the you know value of a good manager is just massive. And so I came out of that experience seeing that you could be a huge lever on a lot of companies if you were able to somehow improve the quality of management and people development in these places. And so that was how we, that was kind of how we picked this space. And then we've now been kind of iterating inside of it for, for a couple of years. And Keith, when Jack first came to you with that idea, were you dubious? Uh, a little bit because there's some big challenges in this market. One is basically being horizontally applicable to a lot of different businesses. It's only an interesting business that applies to not only different verticals, but different size companies. And that's an incredibly difficult challenge um, that actually nobody's solved so far. And then B, convincing managers to adopt it. Um, managers often don't know what they should be doing, what they should be doing differently. And, you know, whether they would adopt something new was is unclear. One of our interesting challenges that I think we also had at Teespring that we have here is sometimes you're in a market where you sort of have two masters that you're serving. So at Teespring, we had the sellers and the buyers. And at Lattice, we have the HR team and like Keith mentioned, everybody has to use it. And so right. I think there's probably a lot of businesses where this applies, where you have multiple people you could serve. And you, I think I think generally you're better off picking one. I mean, there, maybe there's an argument that you should serve both and kind of have teams for both. But I do kind of think that in the end, you need to have one or the other. We had um, our CMO at Teespring came from eBay. And at eBay, they were really clear about focusing on the seller. And that was always the lens through which they did everything. And I, I thought that was at least one interesting learning. So we've tried to take some of those learnings into Lattice. And what what other things have you taken? Because he's bringing such a fascinating story from whether it's on a theory perspective or whether it's on a, just a pure execution perspective. What are other things you either of you have taken from the Teespring journey that you are now applying to the Lattice journey? One thing, and I'm, Keith, I'm curious to hear what you think about this, um, is the sort of a, the, the the rate at which an organization can grow and keep a good culture. And I my my kind of current thinking is that it's limited by the rate at which human relationships can be formed. I, I, I know you've talked about this, so I, I'm kind of curious what you think about this. Yeah, I, I think that there's a ratio between the new, let's say the denominator is your current employment base and the numerator is the amount of people you're adding in a period of time. Let's say it's a week, a month, a quarter. That ratio, as it gets too high or too low, depending on where the numerator denominator are, actually makes like sort of immersion and, you know, learning by osmosis basically impossible. And so now sometimes the product and market fit and the competitive dynamic requires you to go at a very rapid clip, but that's a very big problem when you can't assimilate people. And, you know, so if you're adding, let's say you have a typical company, 30 employees, you want to add three a quarter, that's trivially easy. You want to add three a month, a little bit more difficult. 
you want to add 10 a month, then you have a real problem, real challenge. But there's opportunities where you're actually sacrificing the opportunity by not going that fast. So, for example, when I was at Square, we went in one year from 21 employees to 254 or so. Conversely, when I was at LinkedIn, in two and a half years, we went from 22 employees to 65. And it was partially how the market was reacting uh, to the product and the competitive dynamic. So we would have lost opportunities had we not grown really fast and scaled the engineering team at Square. Whereas at LinkedIn, we really didn't have the need for, I mean, we could always have more engineers, but we didn't fundamentally feel like we were missing anything because there was really nothing else in the professional networking space. We knew what we were doing. We knew, we knew what we needed to do. We could have done it faster and better, but it wasn't really a, a function of resources. If you were advising a CEO who was going through that hyper growth in, in terms of scaling their team, what are the things that either of you would make sure to make sure that they, they know and are aware of and are implementing in terms of processes or approaches? Or well, I think there's step function changes um, in scales of organizations where you have to throw out like sort of the playbook that's worked for you because the scale of humans no longer works with the informal processes you have. So below 20 people, you actually don't really need many formal processes. You can learn by osmosis. Everybody's probably in the same room, probably knows what everybody else is working on, certainly knows their name, may know their significant others. So, and you know probably how well they do their job, like universally yep. across the company. Then you go to 50 people and some of that stops, starts breaking. You won't probably know how well everybody does their job. You probably still know all their names and what they're kind of working on. Then you get to 150 people and you don't actually know what everybody's working on. And then you need different processes to make sure everybody working on things that roughly align and come together and create a one plus one equals three as opposed to subtraction. You need company meetings. You need a lot more formal communication because like everybody's not going to learn through osmosis. Everybody's not going to be in the same room. Probably they're not going to hear each other's phone calls all day long, which is kind of right. a feature and a bug of being yeah. a 20 person company. Yeah. So like it, it is a function of what the end is. And then above 300 people, you're actually not going to know their names. Like it's yeah. like almost humanly impossible for a CEO to know all 300 people's names. And that creates a whole different dynamic, let alone that you're calibrating people through intermediaries. And so it, it, it's like every time you add like as roughly a zero to your headcount, you have to change everything. Right. You want to add that? Well, the, the thing I was going to say that is kind of goes with that is that like as founders, a lot of people want to innovate on like most things. So it's very tempting not to just iterate on product, but to also iterate on company communications and the way that you do, you know, your renewals process and all of these things. And my sense, you know, in my limited experience is that you're better off innovating on as few things as possible. One of them should certainly be your product. And then like, maybe you can have like one other area where you innovate or something like that. But like in most cases, you should talk to somebody who's been through, okay, when you get to 75 people, you're going to need to break into teams in this way, or you're going to need to communicate that way. Like most of this stuff has been done before and you want to innovate. It's not, it's not helpful to innovate everywhere. You actually want to learn from people where you can and then do what's new where you're good at it. Yeah, I agree with that completely. You have to selectively pick things that you're going to innovate on. Darwinistic evolution sort of works. Humans are humans are humans. And there's been like organizations of humans for a very long time. And it's not surprising that the military divides things into you know, 150 people right. maximum. And there's just principles of like human behavior that, you know, you could read sapiens and, like, yep. you know, sort of drives back like hundreds to thousands, to tens of thousands to millions of years. That said, I think every organization that becomes successful does innovate on some dimensions of management. So Apple does things differently than Google, that does things differently than Amazon, does things differently than Facebook. And ideally, the things you do differently are consistent with your product and your market and your, cult your culture and your brand. And it creates a positive feedback loop. 
But Apple doesn't do everything different than every other company, and Facebook doesn't do everything differently than Google does. So you really have to pick selectively where you want to innovate. Because every time you innovate, you're taking risk. One of the reasons why it's dangerous is there's a lot of things that can go wrong when you do something different. Like Darwinistic evolution is sort of proof what works and doesn't. It's like airplanes. Right. If you fly a 747, it's been around for 40 years or 50 years, and it's kind of old technology, but it's very safe because yep. every possible flaw has been explored. Versus flying a brand new plane, which has all the greatest modern cool stuff, like you know, one of these Dreamliners, it's highly likely that a Dreamliner will be more dangerous than a 747, even though it's 50 years more modern. Well, let me ask you, because you've been building this sort of playbook ever since PayPal, right? How to evaluate people, how to hire people, how to manage people, how to scale companies. Is there something in the last year or two years, whether it's one of the companies you've been affiliated with, or maybe the last five years, that you've really changed your mind on, that you used to think this was the best way of doing X? But now some experience showed you that you know, this is the best way of doing X. Well, one virtue, and certainly one virtue of being an investor and an active investor sort of board member is you get to watch. Yeah. So I get to watch like 16 companies in parallel. And you do, you know, it's, it's actually kind of a great opportunity to sit back and watch other really talented people yep. do things. And you pick up, you know, little lessons that you take with you. I haven't had a major epiphany in the last year, but the biggest, you know, sort of sea change in my sort of management career sort of philosophy was I grew up in PayPal. And we did everything empirically, um, you know, sort of being able to do math and stats and calculus on the fly was kind of important to even get promoted as a company. And then LinkedIn was a generally empirically driven company. Then Slide was a massively empirically driven company. And then I went to Square where metrics didn't really matter. Everything was design driven. It's a very different philosophy. And you have to learn how to make decisions where the currency is not numbered. Right. currency is something else and it's like user experience and it's a feel and an aesthetic you still have to make decisions though you don't get to punt on all your decisions uh so i had to learn a very different approach and actually i, I learned to enjoy that approach and sort of a more on that style now mm -hmm. of like what's the right way to build a company is more make everything closer to perfect than just whatever people click on the most when you think you know most of you because you're watching so many companies most of them fail or most of them don't become huge you know, outliers when you think about assessing why why they fail how do you because let's take it you know, fails a strong word but don't read become you know multi-billion dollar company and i'm not as close to it as you guys obviously but take something like teespring it was the quickest company or one of the quickest companies to a billion dollars it's like it had some crazy growth and i'm not that close to it but i think i question hey was it a they just found it they found an arbitrage and that arbitrage went away was it you know, maybe some culture thing. Like, I guess, so I think that as a sort of broader question to not about Disney, but it was, as you analyze why companies don't reach their full potential, how do you think about that? So our number one conclusion at Kosla is an adage that Vinod taught me while I was on the board of Square, which is the team you build is the company you build. And basically it's a function of talent. So if you recruit an incredibly talented team, you have a significantly better chance of massive success than, you know, a regularly talented team. It's a little bit like sports. Like you draft a lot of athletes, very few become starters, very few become all-stars, very few become Hall of Famers. It's a bit like that. So even when you're taking a pool of people that's quite quite good by any benchmark, only a certain fraction are going to be extraordinarily good. But if you can assemble a critical density of extraordinarily talented and motivated people, keep them in one place for a sustained period of time, right. you can do unusually great things. I mean, that is the story of PayPal. PayPal is a very complicated, very messy business. I mean, we went through three CEOs in six months. The only reason the company survived and to some extent thrived was there was a disproportionate 
amount of talent in the building and we were able to assemble that critical density of talent and keep them and preserve them together, at least until we sold the company. And so companies that have that unusual advantage in talent and that's partially recruiting, assessing, and then retaining, and you can Jack talk about all those, um, allow the companies to do, you know, amazing things. I think also, and this is a point that you made when you were uh, talking, talking to us the other day, was there are different industries that at different points in time attract different amounts of talent. So right now there's a lot of talent in, let's say, self-driving cars, for example, and there might be relatively less talent in accounting software, Mm -hmm. but accounting software might be as big of a market as the self-driving car market today, at least. And so there's also a dynamic by which if you can sort of coalesce extremely good teams around sort of less seen or less sexy, you know, markets, I think there's like a competitive advantage that is an extra value there that you can get as well. Yeah. Yeah, and often in enterprise software, um, which you know isn't often overhyped, um, you can if you can attract the right team and maintain the right team, you can go very far just through that. And in some of the consumer products, I think you still have to hit some pop culture resonance, and you know you have to right. not really time things, but it, it has to resonate with society as a whole versus just the talent of the team. So you can't guarantee that. But in enterprise, if you can attract the right team, you can build at least some value and possibly a lot of value. Yeah. Let's go through the three, assessing, recruiting, and retaining. What separate, let's do assessing first. What separates teams who are excellent or people who are excellent assessors of talent from people who aren't? So one of the things that you just said there was like teams and people. One, the, a first point that you know is something that has changed for me in my thinking over the course of Lattice is the sort of idea of team construction and that... I used to think that like if you were in a mode where you wanted to be particularly long-term or short-term or risk-averse or whatever, that you kind of wanted everybody to be on the same page about how we're behaving. And this this may be wrong and my thinking is still evolving on it, but one thing that I've looked for a lot recently is constructing teams that sort of average out to where you think you ought to be. And then that way you get sort of diverging views. And, you know, this is this is sort of a new thing I've been thinking about, but the the idea of building sort of a, a roster and not just individuals, I think if done right, you can get extra value there. And so maybe one way that you can get extra value from people is by putting them in a sort of team composition where they're twice as effective as they would be in a different one. Are startups more like soccer than basketball in terms of my understanding of soccer and basketball is that basketball is more about individual, like LeBron James can really dominate a game, whereas maybe soccer is more of a team, like the the 12th player and the 11th player really matter? Is that, is that a fair assessment? Well, I mean, I think you could use football. I think it actually starts from more like football in mm-hmm. many ways because you need the incredible um, synchronization. Yep. So like a well-run offense just has incredible, um, you know, sort of collaboration. It's a very difficult sport to accomplish that. And so, in fact, one of the books I like, you know, about management that I recommend is The Score Takes Care of Itself yep. by Bill Walsh, which is really about building a football team and a successful football team, but I think it applies to startups extremely well, which is why I recommend it. Um, so I think it is, but football does depend upon talent. You have to have quarterback. I mean, those right. those listeners, you know, in the Bay yeah. Area will, will, will notice the difference <laughs> of the 49ers before yeah. and after, you know, a certain quarterback playing. So even one positional change right. can make, a, you know, a fundamental difference in the outcome. But the team has to act as a team in unison and you can see the difference. Like you can watch on it TV, on TV if you like. You can just watch a team sort of approach the offensive line 
And you can see subtle differences about how well-coordinated, orchestrated right. they are. And certainly when you walk into a building of a startup, you can see immediately like how well right. that company is executing. It's like one of my favorite things to do is just walk around an office and I can tell you so much about a startup um, just by like walking into the office for like literally less than five minutes. I do think that you need greatness on like at least one dimension early on. And the reason I think that is because it sort of pulls the rest of the company generally. So like having, let's say between either like really excellent marketing, really excellent sales, really great product or design or something. I think one function being like truly excellent, not only sets a standard for everybody else. So it has this internal talent effect, but it also kind of can drag your company forward. Like I was talking to, um, a, a friend of mine who's a founder of a company who had a really great sales team early on and not a really great marketing team early on and they became a sales-led company and right. the hypothesis was actually that they wouldn't have necessarily been that if they had had a really strong marketing leader early and vice versa and you can build these companies in lots of different ways but I do think you kind of have to be excellent somewhere. Yeah, you, have to, you have to have a comparative like, you have to have a comparative advantage you have to decide either inherit that or decide what that is, and then you want to build around that. So, you know, you want to tackle certain markets from an angle that other people ideally haven't. And that better, you better be world-class or better than that, you know, at that dimension. That's the key aperture. And, and sort of you're making a bet. Usually as a startup, you're making a bet. There's an aperture to a market that other people don't understand. And that's like sort of the Peter Thiel, like sort of secret, like that this market can be attacked in a way that other people don't see. And that's where your you know, DNA better be very strong. Then once you prove that that actually is working, you can build a scaffolding around that and, you know, more traditional scaffolding because your aperture is so strong. It's like, right. military, like military stuff. There's a great book um, called Warfighting by the, published by the Marines, U.S. Marines. And it's like you find your one point of vulnerability and you throw everything you have at that. And if you get a breakthrough, then you're off to the races. And that's kind of what a startup is. It's sort of like what you were saying about like Apple earlier, how they have like culture and they fit basically between their culture and their product and their market. Like if you can have strategy and then like specialization fits, like for example, Atlassian strategy, Mm -hmm. like clearly more important for them to really just have great product and engineering than it was for them to have great sales because of the way they were approaching the market. Or you think about a company like Intercom, really good for them to have great product and great content marketing, not so important for them to have like enterprise sales. Right. First, if you think about a company like Workday that was like going for it right from the beginning, got to have amazing enterprise sales yeah. muscle out of the gate. So I think so much of where you need to sort of like be great depends on your approach to the market. How do you think about, in retrospect, Slide, right? Excellent team, I guess, in, in retrospect. I, how do you make sense of the team you build as a company you build? Yeah, well, we, I mean, for a while, the company is doing pretty well. I mean, we, you know, at our height, raised money at, you know, $500 million plus, you know, valuation back when that was rare. Right. Um, in fact, in some ways we pioneered this era of these yeah. like sort of growth rounds um, by uh, the Fidelities and T-Rows of the world. We were probably the one of the first two companies to do it in Silicon Valley. And we rode, you know, a Facebook wave that was actually pretty real and a MySpace wave that was pretty real. And then we failed to adjust to the transformation of the Facebook platform and we actually made a major cultural change. We moved offices right at the height of the Facebook wave. And we went from a one office, I mean, sort of one um, one floor office yep. to three floors. And on the one floor office, which was above fire code, everybody definitely knew what everybody else was doing and why they were doing it, how well they were doing it. Then we went to three floors and all of a sudden politics broke out. And it was like, why is that team doing this? I don't understand their strategy. Why are they leaving at six o'clock? I'm working to midnight. Right. And it took us probably nine months to recognize that the root cause of that was actually the office layout. 
and nine months in the hyper competitive Facebook landscape was like dead. I mean, we like really missed the window and the Facebook platform as it shifted to really favoring social gaming, that wasn't our core DNA. So we sort of built a team that was around self-expression and identity. It was exceptional at photos, self-expression identity. And Mark at Facebook on down really translated the platform into a social gaming platform. And we could try to modulate into that. And we did. And we became a mediocre version of what we used to do because we sort of had the wrong team. And it took us about nine months too long to recognize it. Mm-hmm. So we ultimately sold the company to Google for, you know, on an account of 187 to $224 million, which wasn't terrible. Um, right. And it was a function to some extent of talent. That's what right. you know, Google was acquiring. It wasn't the applications. But we really missed um, a couple key things. And it's part of the flaws and led to my epiphany of a bottom-up driven culture where everything was based upon data. Bottom-up data was suggesting that what we were doing was actually resonating, but it didn't account for what Facebook wanted us to do and where the macro landscape was shifting to. Yeah. So what do you do when you're working for, like to my understanding, was Square, Square was not a bottom-up company in that way? Yeah, no. Right. Very top-down. Yeah. So I guess what do you do when you're at a company and you are sort of not in agreement with with how, you know, like you know you have your philosophy, you know you're running, they're running a different philosophy. How do you sort of work in that capacity? Well, I think first of all, you should filter uh, before you join a company. Right. I think, you know, companies have sort of a culture, philosophy, an operating system sort of, and everybody has both preferences on a scale. You know, it's probably a scale, not binary. And everybody has also skills that are also distributed. Yeah. So some people would thrive in an empirically driven culture and some people would not thrive in a design driven culture. Right. And they could be very successful in the opposite party. You could take like senior executives from Google would fail miserably at Apple yeah. and probably vice versa. And so you have to pick both what do you prefer and what are you good at and proficient yeah. at. And so if you choose wisely, there should be a match there that a company can change, you can change, et cetera. And I think often when that mismatch occurs, it's probably better to leave. Okay. I want to start, I want to talk about all things people and I want to start sort of at the most beginning level, starting with co-founders. What's your philosophy of picking a co-founder? So I can share mine. Um, so I was, I've been particularly lucky with my co-founder and I think I've, I've come to appreciate this more over time. Um, so we worked together at Teespring. He led the engineering team. I was in the business development team. And we had both a working relationship and a friendship. And we had that before we started. We've since become like very good friends. You know, yep. Crimson at my wedding. Like we're, we like do a yep. lot of stuff together. We were, you know, we've been working out every morning this yeah, week. So we big. after all these years, we're still, it's just, it's just like, no, <laughs> yeah. but like with, with in, in our case, that sort of relationship has been such a blessing for, I think the whole company to not have, either the negatives from misalignment and then also just the positives from us being able to reduce communication because we trust each other to do stuff from us always being on the same page. You know, as far as I certainly never talked about the bottom when I'm, when he's not there, I hope it doesn't happen the other way. And that relationship is like so foundational to a company that when it's strong, it's a huge advantage, I think. And then, you know, I think companies can get through bad co-founder things, but I know at YC, they say that like bad co-founder relationships are one of the sort of, right. you know, biggest Big killers. I see they also say don't work with someone you, you haven't known for a while. Is that, is that fair? I mean, I, w- I wouldn't. Like, right. you go through, like, the amount of psychological up and down that you go through in the early days, and I think different people handle it differently. Right. But I know from my experience, sort of before we had product market fit and from other founders that I've talked to, it's kind of taxing. Like, you've gone yeah. through a life where everything's kind of 
you know, been a laid out path for you and you've kind of climbed a ladder and people have told you this is how you be successful and the thing that you need to do is very achievable um, and you can just sort of do it. And then all of a sudden you get into a situation where it's like you versus the market and you're out there with no customers, no product, no anything, and you kind of feel like a fraud. And that psychological point, which actually another thing that we could talk about is sort yeah. of like the psychological experience of, of the early days of, of startup right. and I'm sure the late yeah. days too. But you know, the co-founder relationship like gets you through like not quitting. Right. It gets you through like a lot of things that are, you know, that suck when you have early hires that yep. don't work out or when your early product's not working. So for us, it's been, you know, you have a lot of different things that can go right or wrong. And my experience has just been like, if you can get that right, it's like right. a huge thing. Keith, what do you think? I mean, you see so many people who are, you know, want to start companies, people, EIRs, and they don't yet have a co-founder. Do you say, go find the smartest person you've, you've worked with? Not necessarily. It depends on what you're trying to uh, achieve. What market are you sort of interested in? So for example, if you wanted to compete with SpaceX, the proper co-founder for me is very different than if I wanted to compete with PayPal versus if I wanted to do a photo right. sharing app. So it's like, what are you trying to achieve and what kind of DNA like is at the root of success in that market? So for example, when we started Open Door, I needed someone who knew something about real estate, hopefully not too much, but just enough to be dangerous. I needed someone who knew something about data science because those are the two sort of foundational elements of what we do is real estate yeah. and data science. Someone who knew something about finance and was tenacious. And that yeah. was like my third co-founder. And so the combination is what I was looking for. It wasn't like, oh, go find this. Now that said, I knew all three. I'd invested, I'd invested in uh, Eric, uh, our CEO, when he graduated from Y Combinator in 2009 or so. I had hired Ian out of grad school at Square, um, sort of almost interview on scene. I met him at a party. I was like, you have a job. Yeah. And then um, I've been trying to recruit JD for like years. Yeah. Um, so similar sort of story. I think it is possible to do matchmaking without that much context. I mean, when I joined Square, I didn't know Jack that well. We did have a lot of maybe, let's say, common nodes. So it's a little easier to triangulate. We spent a fair amount of time together. And I think the key lesson from that is you definitely need to agree on first principles. So that's, and then it may take working together sometimes to know whether there's alignment on first principles. And first principles are things like, you know, is, is data more important than right. design? Or, you know, are we going to be an engineering and product driven company or are we going to be a sales and marketing driven yeah. company? And sometimes until there's an asset test that's real, you don't know that. If you've worked with someone before, you, you can witness how that person reacts and what kind of things they prefer and you have more conviction and confidence that it's going to work well. This is the first time I've thought about this. So this, this could be totally perfect time. But I'm wondering if, if like the sort of the early career thing that you want to do is really like work with a friend and maybe right. like later in your career when you're a little bit more established if matchmaking is like a bit more possible i'm trying to think of like i'm trying to go through big company examples yeah. in my head, but i wonder if that might it, be sure, it, it certainly makes sense to me i mean obviously you know my paypal crowd has worked together a lot and i've worked with them a lot i mean actually square is the first time i didn't work for someone i knew you know from paypal for like the first time in my professional career really and i think that was true for us when we were younger and maybe it's more possible as you get more experienced, you know what sort of questions and how to have a debate slash dialogue and figure out how much agreement there really is. Whereas I think when you're younger, you may not even know how to formulate the, those kind of acid test questions. So, so for example, one thing Jack did with me was 
we knew a decent number of people in common without telling me which ones he respected and dis- which ones he disliked. He gave me a list of people and said, what do you think of this, per- you know, these five people? And so you could tell like sort of, he also read every single tweet I never right. uh, tweeted, which, you know, is a lot. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so you get a feel for like how my brain worked from those two kind of questions, but you might not be able to do that earlier in your career. Right. What is, let's go zoom out a little bit back because you, you talked to so many people, you know, me included, who are thinking about what idea to pursue and you know, you know mutual friends ERs at Costa you know, Rishi or Boswell like how are you advising people on on idea that's a great question because I don't think that conventional advice is all that great I mean the conventional advice goes something like find something you're passionate yeah. about blah 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 like so easy to refute I mean I, I wound up doing a lot of financial services and payments over my career I never would have guessed that I would enjoy financial services or payments like before I joined PayPal I knew nothing about payments and wouldn't have guessed that I would you know involved in many companies, like three public companies, just in payments, hopefully a fourth or fifth or right. sixth, actually, yeah. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully at least six. And so I think that advice is just clearly wrong. And Ben Horowitz has talked a little bit about that in you know, a commencement uh, speech he gave, I think, in Columbia. So if it's not that, then the YC advice is find something, you know, a problem that you've experienced, right? Like something, and that's pretty good, but it may not be exhaustive enough, meaning like where, where it's true, like you can actually diagnose a problem based upon your own experience it is more likely that you can come up with a solution, right? So you understand the problem, the pain. So can you fix it? Maybe yes. If you haven't experienced it, it's certainly harder to quote unquote fix it. And we run into this at Open Door because we're not live in the Bay Area for you know unique reasons related to the residential real estate market in the Bay Area. A lot of my colleagues at Open Door have, no, have never bought a house or never sold a house. And it does create some sources of disconnect because they haven't actually gone through the process of what we're solving. And it's just unrealistic to let, give them a budget to go buy and sell houses, which would be the classic technique of most companies is you, you know, subsidize employees doing X, Y, and Z to get up to speed. Right. Um, so I think that's a good solution, but it, the problem is it's a little too constraining, which is if you only tackle problems that you've experienced, that may be you know, shortchanging the world. So I think of like, do you want to solve cancer? Sure. <laughs> you don't have to have had right. cancer in your family or yourself to necessarily think that's a good idea if you have some of the raw ingredients. So I think it's like something about like, do you have a unique advantage vis-a-vis the rest of the world? And that can be a skill you have, an insight you have, or yeah, an insight or experience or a unique DNA that is helpful for that specific problem. How important do you think founder-led companies are? Like should Jack be the CEO up until they go public or just, just in general with companies? When do you think it's important? So every you know everybody has different views on this, and there's a range. Mine mine's pretty straightforward, which is I basically as an investor only invest in founders that I think are going to be the CEO forever. That doesn't mean I'm always right. So there's a difference between what I believe when I invest and in practice. Can everybody handle the ups and downs, the trials and tribulations, all the stress that goes with being a CEO? So. But I will not invest in a company if I don't think the founder is the permanent CEO, whereas there's other investors who will and think that, okay, we'll get to a certain milestone and then maybe a technical milestone, maybe a product milestone, maybe some market milestone, maybe some human milestone of like ex-employees. And then I intend to want to make a change and I'll even have that conversation with the current founder in advance. That, that's just not my style, not what I believe, because I believe that best companies that do the best in create a disproportionate amount of value or founder driven for a variety of reasons. And hence I'm only looking for those. Right. Going back to the assessing, recruiting and retaining framework, just when you talk about assessing, are you talking about evaluating people 
who other people have already passed on or finding people who no one has already found, like just looking at different places. Well, I, you know, to do it awesomely, you'd want it to be incredible. You'd want to do both of it. You clearly want to be able to find people. It's like credit, right? Like it's underwriting credit for like consumers. If you can find people that are mispriced, perfect. <laughs> All day yeah. long, hire them. But there's not an infinite supply of that. Yeah. Then similarly, if you can find pools of talent that other people aren't looking at, great. But there's probably not infinite ones of yeah. those either. So you have to kind of do both. I mean, this is the most important lesson that Peter Thiel taught me from PayPal was if you're going to build a company from scratch, you better be really good at this stuff because you can't go hire the people that the large companies know how to assess accurately because they're going to always offer them more money. And you're not going to be able to compete on the basis of cash, nor do you really want to. And so you've got to find people that either the large companies don't know how to assess because they're too risky or they're under the radar or there's not enough data to evaluate them through their black box machine of assessment and maximize their talent. And so uh, how are you advising companies or how are you thinking about a lattice? Like first 20, first 50, like where, what pools are you looking at and how are you assessing people differently? So my experience has been like the traits that you're looking for at different stages are, are so different. And the people who are successful when you're five people or 20 or 50, 300, whatever, I think they're all so different that you have to have a sort of different mind when you're going into each of those. And it probably also depends on, on the role quite a bit. So like, in the early days, you're kind of looking for people who have something that's very close to a founder mentality for the first maybe 10 employees. And so kind of going back to what Keith was saying, you know, about sort of working on what you're passionate about versus working on sort of just what can work. My experience has been you obviously, if you can have something that you're both passionate about and works, like that's the best case, but it's so hard to get something working at all that if you constrain yourself to something that you happen to also be passionate about, yeah. that's such a small intersecting subset. And so there's this, there's this grit mentality of I'm going to put the company first, even above my own preferences of what I would like to be working on today, because that's going to be best for the company. But also in truth, I realized that what's going to be fun is working on something that's working as fun. Right. And hopefully you started in a market that you like in the first place. Like it would be hard, for example, for me to wiggle anywhere from where Lattice is today to something that I didn't like, yeah. but I would be willing to wiggle to what was going to work. And so in the, with the early employees, you're looking for people who sort of just want to make it work no matter what. And I think that's a really different trait than maybe later on you're looking for people who want to take an early thing that's working and start scaling it. Or maybe later than that, you're looking for people who can start managing this or like, you know, taking it up to a different level. Yeah, well, I mean, one metaphor I heard that actually is pretty good is in the beginning days of a startup, you're kind of trailblazing, you know, and like foraging your way through the forest and you're trying to find the path. Once you know you have a path, then you want to like bulldoze that. You want to put down a road and the kind of machines that put down a road are very different than the trailblazing experience. So you are looking for different things. And that said, people that you meet with or interview and sign up may not know that about themselves. So part of the problem is let's say a startup is cool, interesting, hot, becomes sexy. You get a lot of people that want to join an early stage startup for reasons that may be inappropriate for their skills. And the challenge in assessing is matchmaking, like what their DNA is against what you need at that moment. And then maybe someone that you want to call back in three years when you have 250 employees and you've got a conventional sales team and they'd be an awesome manager of that sales team. So it is partially stage-driven or employee-market-driven, where are you as a company, what the right skills are. But there is sometimes a mismatch in the 
in the employee, the potential employee, the candidate's mind of what they what they want to do or what they think they're good at. One of the common complaints that uh, you know so many people are having now is that the big companies are getting so big, Facebook and Google, and they have, like they're not just they're not just big companies; they're also like still fun to work at. Like people are well paid, they're enjoying themselves, they're surrounded yeah. by good colleagues. And by the way, they're opening offices in San Francisco, so you don't even have to commute anymore. Yeah. And it's really hard to like compete against these for talent. But I do think one of the advantages that a startup can have is there are people who those companies wouldn't want at all and who maybe wouldn't be successful at Google who would be extremely successful in a particular startup environment. And how do you find those people? So a lot of it has to be sort of matching to the particular context. I mean, there's a question of how do you attract them in the first place, which I guess was the next thing we we're going to go to of how do you become sort of a place that people Let's go there. want to work? Yeah. And then the other one was assessing. But I guess we sort of just talked about assessing like up to a little bit. On the attraction, I don't know, Keith, you had some interesting points about talent, becoming a talent magnet. Well, I think, first of all... And what are inflection points? Like, when does a company become a talent magnet? Well, I think it becomes... So, so there's a couple of different paths that people try. One is you assemble a core team that is known to be pretty talented, and that becomes somewhat self-fulfilling because those people have networks. The, the people who meet those people are like, wow, everybody's really impressive. This Dropbox. Yeah, this and drive. it becomes a little bit self-fulfilling, even independent of product market fit. Then there's the, you're a high growth company where it's very clear what you're doing is resonating with some set of users, consumers, businesses. And so it has escape velocity or potential escape velocity and people want to join. And then you can throw media coverage at that as sort of like amplification. Actually, you can throw media coverage at either. But it's really designed to broadcast out to the ether. This is an interesting place. We're doing interesting things with interesting people. You want to join us. And then that that's really the best path. I mean, obviously, network-based hiring works. So if you have, you know, above a certain number of nodes, if everyone else has worked with interesting people, you want the best people they've ever worked with and you want them to organically want their best former colleagues to want to join. This is probably one of the best benefits of and litmus tests of a really great executive is do their people want to come with them? And it both tells you if they were great before and it also tells you like, I'm going to get a bunch more talent when I bring this yep. person on. So we recently hired a COO, and one of the best sort of side benefits of that is he brought three excellent people, you know, over, you know, the coming kind of months. And, like, that alone is this, like, very, you know, underrated and huge benefit that you get when you hire other magnets. And we've seen this other times, that you bring magnets into the company, and then you sort of start multiplying that way. So that's huge. And what was the open-door story in terms of? talent was it from the beginning because you were involved or was it it hit some crucial inflection point well i think no because we took us i mean obviously it wasn't an inflection point because it took us like six months or whatever to even launch let alone like you know have true product market fit which is another two months we were able to tap into a pretty good pool of talent from like a bunch of x squares you know that worked with ian my co-founder worked at square as the first data scientist our first engineering sort of actual hire so first employee was an engineer manager for square so we, knew, we sort of knew who we really wanted to work with from Square, which is one pool. Eric, through YC and a bunch of investments he'd made as an angel, had a pretty good network as well. JD had his own network through like the Adapar kind of Joe Lonsdale-esque crowd. And so we had like, you know, several good networks come together. And then Eric, to his credit, is an incredible interviewer like i mean maybe the best in terms of assessing people i've ever met what makes him exceptional at that just his ability to be accurate i mean like i I just i i I, for four years now i just throw people at him that i've known for three to ten years and he'll meet them in in the first interview 
write up his notes on their strengths and weaknesses. And I'll be like, oh my God, how'd you figure that out? And he just does that every day. Like, uh, what? So one of the ways you get a great pool of talent is you don't make a lot of mistakes. Right. And his ability to assess people and understand what they're great at and what they're potentially not great at or where they need you know some degree of improvement is just dead on every time. And are there any litmus tests that he's employing or, or any? You have, to, you have to interview him. Right. I, I, I don't even ask him what he does. Yeah. I just, I like, just, send, me your, I just yeah. like, send me your notes. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it, it really does, but it cascades through the whole company right. because when the CEO can assess talent reliably and ruthlessly, it means that you wind up with the right people doing the right jobs because per the point about whether it's soccer, football, baseball, yeah. you don't want like a six foot eight second baseman in right. baseball. Like that just doesn't work. And you also, you know, probably do have a six foot four above first baseman. And so placing people in the right places means the company as a whole performs better. So if you're assessing at the front end, it's, it's a lot easier actually. It solves some management uh, headaches and challenges. So if you hire the right people and you place them in the right roles, managing them becomes actually right. very a lot easier like you know order of magnitude easier it, the hard part of managing is when you have either hired someone incorrectly or you know completely incorrectly or have people in roles that they either don't enjoy or thrive in right managing is like uh fixing those you know becomes painful because you're fixing pre-existing mistakes you do the first parts right like you don't need an awesome manager you just need a competent manager and how when you go back to assessment for a second you were talking about uh, people who don't necessarily fit the mold. Sometimes people who are weird or crazy in a certain way. How do you identify with it? What what assess do you employ deploy to see whether they're the right kind of weird or crazy, or just the there's a reason why they don't fit the mold? They don't fit any mold. <laughs> yeah, one of our most reliable things, if we can do it, is to work with them for a little bit. So like, we've had a lot of cases where we've for big hires early on, and we kind of stole this from just like listening to the Stripe founders talk about it. If you can get these people to you know spend a day or a week even if you're lucky working with yep. you like there's really nothing that beats that and you know if you don't have the sort of magic touch that eric from open door has of being able to meet somebody for 30 minutes and and know it which you know you you can get you can right. get an idea but if you can actually work with them you can just see do they have the spark do they follow up do they communicate well do they have all these things so that's been our most reliable thing they may not scale forever, obviously, right. but it's it's nice if you can do it. Very it's time. really the most accurate. It's not feasible for every kind of candidate and every kind of company, but by definition, the data points you get from that are just broader. Like, so when I interview somebody, let's say for an hour, or even if I do multiple rounds of interviews, it's a very limited set of data. And then even if I do reference checking, it's still a limited set of data vis-a-vis what I get in, a, in let's say a week. So let me turn this around from an angel investor perspective or even a VC perspective. The hardest decisions as an investor is when you meet someone for the first time and you kind of have to make a decision on the fly, maybe not a permanent decision like I'm giving you money, but like binary sort of decision like am I going to spend more real time, dig in due diligence, or am I like, you know, going to make a commitment or a pass? And you, you just have to be good at that in one, one sort of meeting. Those are really hard even when you're off, even when you're a truly excellent investor. Imagine though how much easier it is if you're investing in a founder or potentially considering investing in a founder that you worked with for three years. So what I, what I figured out about actually in my own career is when I, when I was at hip hop, I was actually fairly mediocre at hiring people. Um, the people I hired were kind of random, like some worked out, some did it. Some were, and none of them were awesome. The people that I recruited internally though, and stole from other people's teams were universally excellent. So what I think the lesson from that experience, other than some of my colleagues hating me because I'm stealing all the best people, <laughs> the, the, experience, the, the lesson from that experience though was 
okay, I'm not bad at hiring per se, because I'm clearly identifying the right people. I'm just bad at hiring people from off the street. Now, how do I learn to get enough data about hiring people off the street that it can be a proxy for how I would pick people within the company? And what's and that look like? Even my investment career was the same way. Like All my early traction success as an investor was backing PayPal colleagues and deciding which ones to back and which ones not to. And so that was, again, an easier problem to solve and then try to extrapolate from those lessons to meeting a new founder from scratch. So that, that can help. If you get the data point, any way you can extend the data points, like longitudinally in time, like Jack's doing, or you can get really excellent at reference checking, which is an art in and of itself, which gives you more data points. Now, mediocre reference checking is not going to help you that much, but being awesome at reference checking can be a competitive advantage as well. Like, for example, the best investors, like Greylock, is incredibly good at checking they're much better than other pcs at reference checking and what makes them excellent at reference checking let's say jack is a founder and they're looking at jack's company and they're calling you to you know jack really well what, what are they asking or what are they doing differently well i want to mean, do what, them and get yeah, their secret what makes them and share it what makes but, excellent what's your the philosophy thing that, the thing that stood out to me this goes back over a decade when i first learned it about them is they just won't stop reference checking until they get at least one negative reference check they have like an infallible rule that there's always somebody who's not going to be positive, supportive, and you don't have to stop until you get yeah. to the bottom of that. And as a discipline, it's actually a pretty good one. Now, most people are just too lazy, truthfully, to actually do that. Most people are actually shortcut reference checking, period. It does help when you have a network. So the better your network, the more authentic the information you're going to get is. Um, so, for example, I can do reference checking better than one of my junior colleagues. Mm -hmm. And it's not because I'm better than him or her at the actual reference checking right. mechanics. We'll ask the same questions, maybe even. But because I have a pre-existing relationship with the person I'm calling, I can probably get a slightly more authentic answer. Right. So the broader the network you have, you can leverage that to your advantage. Another thing with reference checking, and this is kind of similar to performance reviews, is everybody's inclined to say really positive things. Yeah. And so you have to try really hard to frame questions that ask for the negatives. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so like you have to, first of all, discount positivity down by yeah. like a lot. So like questions like, is this person in the top 5% of people you've ever worked with in this role? And like, if not, like, can you tell me the difference between that and then somebody who right. is like asking these questions that force people to not just say, Oh, they're great. I really like them. Cause people want, you know, you're most likely calling somebody they've yeah. worked with who cares about them who wants them to get the job. You know, if a VC is calling, right. you know, somebody and you know, they, if this founder is a friend of theirs, they want the founder to get funded and all right. this kind of stuff. So you have to really look for, you really have to try to get negatives because people are generally positive. Yeah. Right. You will learn how to frame a question where the answer itself is interesting, right? Like, so regardless of how they try to answer it, it gives you insight. And there's a set of questions like that. There's an old trick that um, I learned back in the day that you can no longer use because people don't use voicemail anymore. But the basic trick from Headhunter day, days, you know, that I, that I was taught was, you leave a voicemail and you say, if this person was awesome, please call me back right away. And it was like so predictive because like the person likes the candidate yeah. and they really thought they're awesome. They'll, they'll call you back like instantly. Yeah. Um, but no, you can't really do that with a text message as well because you might not be able to leave a text and right. not know them and stuff like that. That's funny. Reed told us something like rate this person one to 10. And if they say eight, it's okay. If they say seven, it's fucking terrible. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So there's an old, well, the Harvard, yeah. the Harvard Business School like the old uh, Harvard Business School application was pretty good at this. So I'm like a demented grid. Right. And I, don't know, I, I don't know if they still do it this way, but when I used to have to write recommendations to people, then this grid, and it had like six or seven dimensions, uh, you know, sort of down page, and then be like top 1%, top 5%, top 10, 20, whatever. And obviously, if you fill it out, you can't put the person top 1% on all dimensions or 
everybody knows you're like ridiculous. So just where you choose to put the top 1% is a signal in and of itself and where they're not. And then you're like looking at, okay, well, in this role, I'd rather have top 1% intelligence and I don't care about top 1% communication or vice versa. So that you can learn from just the forcing function of requiring the force ranking, like gives you insight. Right. And when you guys hear negative references, what are some things that you're okay hearing negative references on? And what are some things you're not okay hearing negative references on? So it depends on the role, right. um, of course. And so like in a management role, if I heard something like they struggled with communication, like that would probably be the end. Mm-hmm. In, in, in our particular culture, like if I heard that, that would be the end. Whereas in other roles, like that could right. be okay. So it sort of to me is like role dependent. And if there's a thing, if there's a dimension of performance that would really break it, that's kind of what I'm looking for. So like if you need managers to be, great communicators or if you're looking for somebody to be an extremely talented engineer or a salesperson who, you know, is always like thinking right. about like the customer's success. Cause there is a difference between salespeople who think about the customer success versus just crushing quota every month. So I'm usually looking for the thing that would break the role. And if that's the problem, but you can usually tolerate, you know, some, some problems somewhere else. Yeah. I think you're also looking for a spike, which is where, where's the spike of ability and is that what I really need? So for example, let's start product. There are two kinds of like product leaders. One is more like, what should we build? And they have great instincts into what the end customer or the consumer enterprise wants. So they're like a kind of visionary product person. Then there's the, I'm going to make the trains run on time and we're going to ship and, you know, all the specs are going to be done perfectly. We're not going to make mistakes. If you want that, it's, it's per, it'd be terrible if they were a bad communicator. And, you know, a bunch of like other kind of similar characteristics would be required to succeed. If you want a visionary product person, you're looking for something fairly different because one great idea for that person may make or may make your company. And so the ability to actually fix a broken product in a way that transforms the usage of the product can trump a lot of other flaws if they can really do that. So like, it depends on what you need as a company in the role and like where's the person's spikes and where's the weaknesses versus what you need. I think this also gets at a point that you've made before about whether it's an upside creation yeah. role or a downside protection role. Yeah. And so in the upside creation role, I think you generally can tolerate a lot more faults if they're amazing at something. Whereas if you have like, you know, a CFO who like didn't know anything about accounting, like you probably can't. Yeah, I I think it's a great sorting mechanism is, am I trying to create value or protect value? So it sorts out a couple of things like this, but one another one is like experience. So in a value creation role, you may not need a lot of experience. Value protection, like let's say general counsel, CFO, experience is a lot around, I'm not going to make a mistake. I'm going to see around a corner. I'm going to identify something before it becomes a problem. And that is often a function of experience. So it's more risky to disregard experience in a value protection role than a value creation role. So there's understanding what you're trying to get out of the function is really important to even start. And is that similar to your framework of barrels? No, I would say barrels and ammunition is completely different. Like I actually believe like even in a team construct, there's a disproportionate number of people doing heroic work and are really at the vanguard and then people are coming with them. They're bringing, they're rallying people with them, but they're the ones who are like taking the hill and they're, everybody's charging with them either because they have conviction or confidence around the person or the person can motivate people or they can communicate the, the, the vision behind the hill. But those are the barrels. And generally speaking, you're only going to have a handful of barrels in any company. I mean, even like my PayPal mafia friends, you know, everybody thinks we're so talented and all this stuff. 
at best, we had maybe 25, maybe 10, depending on how strict it wants to be, between 10 and 25 barrels in a company right. of 254 people in Mountain View. And that's an extraordinarily high ratio. Usually, you're talking about like a company may have one to five total. And does everyone know who they are? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> one funny thing that we've noticed with our own software is when you're doing a 360 review, like it, it, the way that we run them, we allow people to request peer reviewers. And the people who are overloaded with peer reviewers, for us at least, have been very closely correlated to the people who I think are sort of linchpins for the company. So for us, the our sort of head of product management, she had, I can't even, I can't even remember how many people requesting. But to me, that was an amazing sign that everybody wanted her feedback. Um, so those are, that was one correlation to me. Yeah, no, you can, absolutely everybody will see it once they're in the building. It's much more controversial and difficult to predict in advance. Right. Um, that's much more debatable and complicated. Another signal you see once they work, once the person works there, is people will go up to his or her desk and ask questions a lot, especially people that don't report to this person. And that's actually, as a CEO or CEO, that's kind of what I'm looking for, is I just sit in the middle of the office and kind of just watch. And you see, like, this unusual, like, pattern, someone becomes like the center center node, even if they don't have a senior title or they don't, these people don't report to him or her. And that basically means when someone goes to your desk, it means they can help you with a problem. And that's exactly what you're looking for. Right. So we're going to talk about how to keep those people in a second, but going back to the references, let's talk about founders for a second. When you, what negative references can you hear about a founder that you'll be okay with? Let's say they were fired from the last job for being abrasive or distract, you know, cause drama. Like, how do you think about with negative references for founders, when are you okay with it? When you, I think those can all be fine if the a the founder is aware, self awareness about why that happened and what led to it, and they're not defensive that, at all about yeah. it. Partially because as a founder, people who join the company are electing to join that company. So you can have a very strong personality, let's say, that doesn't homogenize well in someone else's company, but when people join your company they're electing to join that crusade and they know sort of what they're getting into. So some people who actually wash out of a large company for a variety of reasons actually are extraordinarily good founders. A lot of, you know, if you interview founders, uh, you'll hear a lot start a company because they don't want to work for anything. Yeah. It's a very common, you know, yeah. sort of theme. And when they, when they say that, that has a certain set of characteristics and if they're successful as a founder, they don't have to work for anybody, but it usually means that they're often not a great employee, right? They don't, they don't take direction exactly. <laughs> yeah. they, they color outside the lines, sort of, and coloring outside the lines often leads to success and not real endeavor, but it can cause trouble in a large organization. So I don't think any of those are problematic, but I am looking to see, do they know where their blind spots really are? And are they willing to complement themselves with someone who's probably very good at the things they're very bad at? Yeah. Because the combination, again, for the team point of you're constructing a roster, it can be awesome. Like you can combine someone who has almost any flaw. I'd say the integrity flaws are the ones that you really can't fix, but put aside that one, almost any other weakness or flaw, you can couple that person with someone who offset that. So holistically they perform incredibly well. What's your litmus test for when people are not working out and need to be fired? When, when is it, okay, they clearly need to be fired or we just haven't given them enough of a chance or we haven't you set them up for success or... My experience has been there are kind of two times. One time is quickly. So one time <laughs> is you know quickly. It's you hired them and within 30 days or, you know, 15 days or 60 days, <laughs> yeah. you just know you got it wrong. 
and there is a certain just gotta cut the cord nobody i mean nobody with nobody with a soul enjoys firing people it is one of the most unpleasant things that you do but the thing that you have to remind yourself is when you're running a company you don't just have an obligation to one individual you have an obligation to the 30 or 50 other people that work at your company and all of your customers and your investors and your job is to protect this entity and also a person who's in a job where they're not succeeding is not going to feel good and so you need to go fast um, when it's wrong early so that's case one the other case is when the company has truly just scaled to a different point and somebody who was working out when you first hired them is now no longer a good fit and they've either you know become you know ineffective in their role or they've become you know toxic in some way but the other class of person is one who was effective early on, then the company or the situation or something changed such that they're no longer effective. And what signs can you look for in advance to determine whether this person will scale with the company or not? I don't know if you can tell in advance. I mean, it may just be some people's their learning curve yeah. just continues. They, you know, basically one way I describe this that um, I've bounced off some other people that it, it works really well is there's every person has a, and it's going to be hard to do on audio, but has a slope yep. um, of their growth curve and every company has a slope. And as long as your personal growth curve is steeper than the slope of the company's growth curve, you can continue to thrive. However, if the company's growth curve exceeds yours, then you're going to start failing and flailing. And the problem that this creates is the faster the company grows, like so when you hit one of these amazing companies that has this escape velocity, that growth curve is so steep that almost nobody except a very few handful of folks can keep up. And it's a good problem to have in the sense of like customers are buying your product, you know, it's flying off the shelves, uh, you know, sort of so to speak. The, the emotional problem as a manager, executive, senior leader, board member is those a huge fraction of the people are really going to have challenges keeping up and you're going to have to hire people above them to support them, replace them. And there's really no choice. Um, but I always plot, like as an executive, I've always plot that slope, like our growth curve and the employee question. And now as an investor, CEO or other senior executive against the company growth curve. One of the hardest challenges, and I've never had a satisfying answer to this, is what do you do when like you have an employee who's like doing pretty well or like who's like doing like fine? Because like, you know, when you talk about it in the abstract, it's very easy to say we want excellence. We want only high performers. We stand for greatness and all these things. And it's really easy to part ways with someone who's like totally unaffected. Yeah. It's really easy to keep somebody who's amazing. And then there's this middle ground. And I don't know that I've ever found a satisfying answer to what to do with that. I've certainly encountered the situation a lot of times, but I don't know. I'm curious what you guys think about that. I mean, that is the hardest challenge. That's probably the hardest challenge building a company. And I think it comes down to first principles and cultural principles. Like there are some companies that have a strong answer to that and others that have a different answer. It depends a little bit if you want to take two metaphors. There's the family, company as a family, and the company as a sports team. You know, the Netflix sports team um, and then the family style. And to some extent, that kind of dictates where you meet on that curve. You know, like where the, the kind of the pole, you know, the pole sort of goes. Is there a goes. great company that is a family style company? Yeah. Well, I don't know if they really were when they were winning the market. After they're successful, they absolutely, like, so, for example, like Google's a very soft company these days. It was not a soft company in 1998, 1999, 2000, 2001. eBay was always pretty soft, you know, like always a family style, a little bit more establishment, don't create any waves. I mean, that's why all the PayPal people quit. Like, it's the reason we all left in one, two, three weeks. Our philosophy of PayPal was very, very different. We were like an Israeli style company. 
um, where everybody was tenacious, everybody would argue, everybody was so loud. I think it does come back, you know, to the first principles of what kind of company you want to build. And that's why you should have a dialogue with your co-founder. This is an easy way to get, you know, across with someone who otherwise you would agree with is to have a different approach. But there isn't a great answer. There's not even necessarily a right answer because you're also shading, like, it's like, a, what do you do with a B plus? Is it B plus, is it B plus failure or is it B plus success? I mean, the other and this this same question, but phrased pre-hire is when you really need a role and you can't find an amazing person, do you fill it with a B plus? Like, do you accept it? And that's the, this is the same question. That um, one's a little bit easier because it's not someone who's been contributing. And one of the reasons why that even if you believed in a sports team sort of metaphor, that it's hard to actually execute that strategy and a lot of founders and executives hesitate to procrastinate is people forge their own individual social relationships within a company, which is a healthy thing. And so if you replace somebody who's well-connected, it's going to distract a fair number of people. And like it's one of the reasons why like doing a 10% layoff is always a disaster because you think you're doing the surgical cut, but you get all the drag coefficient because those 10% have a lot of friends in the company. They may be best friends with people who are your highest performer. And then your highest performers are distracted for a day, a week, a year. We did this, talk about this thing, slide, we did 10% cut, and, you know, we fired a QA person on my team and who really wasn't doing a great job, but it distracted my entire team for, like, it felt like right. forever, truthfully. And so, you know, like, there's these unique nodes and unique graphs, you know, sort of that form within a company. And so if you start, you know, being too focused on just the performance, you forget about it's still an emotional active right. beat. You know, it's a real animal. There was this company. player who followed Dennis Rodman around. What did his name? He was on the Spurs, and then he was also on the Bulls with him. And he was this white guy who was terrible. He never played, but he's the only person who can keep Dennis Rodman sane. Do you ever see that in startups? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> like someone who's like, this person's just best friends with the barrel. We got to keep... Uh... I actually have seen that before. Well, where you yeah. have somebody who is like... So, for example, like let's just, I'm going to go with the annoying yeah. phrase of a 10x engineer. Yeah. Yeah. If they've got a great friend who's a 0.5x engineer... <laughs> You still yeah. got a pretty good deal between yeah. the two of them right. if the 10x engineer really wants that person around. Yeah. And that's a little bit like basketball, right? In the sense of if you can find a dynamic that works where you have a, you know, a star player in yeah. basketball and the compliment really does compliment that person, that can, that can work. But it is like, that's why it's a little bit more challenging is it's not like he's, it's not like everybody's a, ra- a rational actor yeah. in, in a strict sense. And so as a manager, I think, projects where he started the whole conversation is you're constructing this like over like this uh holistic team that has to perform against some goals and you can get that formula working you may not want to play with too much fire there and when the company does scale there are different challenges that formula that was working you may need to shake up that's actually really required but unless you're really trying to shake it up intentionally you can make mistakes that are really unnecessary another point worth making on this topic is that you should be willing to tolerate something different. You should be willing to tolerate this type of dynamic depending on the role, more or less. Like, you could potentially tolerate this role with somebody who wasn't touching lots of other people, or so someone was an IC on a product team or a sales team or something like that. They're just, by the nature of their job, going to impact fewer people than if, you know, your VP of marketing was like a big problem. Yeah, so it's you, the surface area kind of the blast the radius. Yeah. The, bigger, the bigger the surface area, you really do need to, to hold high standards because every, a also people everybody's going to see it more you know universally apparent that you're not really strict about your standard. B, it's going to impact the company's performance yep. as a whole, and then also if it's the key area you're competing on, you just don't have a choice. You can have like no yeah. tolerance. Yeah. There. yeah, 
How about retaining the barrels? What, what do retaining top talent? What do great teams do to keep the barrels that separates them from teams who don't? The old thinking might have been that compensation was like yep. a major factor. The you know my my experience so far, at least in startup land, is that is not a dimension on which you're able to compete for. Like especially the people who might be a barrel can very easily get a job. Like engineer could walk out of Lattice tomorrow and they could have like five offers by yeah. next week. And I'm like really aware of that. And I think anybody needs to be aware of that if you want to think about this problem. So this is really an empathy question of like, think about yourself and like, what would you, what are the things that you would care about? So like my framework for when, you know, I was working at Teespring, the things I cared about are every day I wanted to love what I was doing. I wanted to feel like what I did mattered, like, you know, to the Steve Jobs, like you want to have yep. an impact on the world. Um, and then you want to feel like you're growing, especially early on in your career where a lot of, you know, a lot of people in Silicon Valley are in the sort of growth phase, like they're in the learn rather than the earn phase. And so if you can provide a place where people have a lot of opportunities to learn, where they can see a tangible impact for like, it matters that I got up today, like somebody cared and that you're part of a company that you like love being at. I think those are the dimensions that a startup can compete on. So for great people, you want to, I think the most important thing is showing them growth opportunities. Um, and that's, there's two dimensions of that. There's personal career growth. So like if they can see that I'm going to get to expand my scope or I'm going to get to become a manager or whatever. And then the other one that I actually think is the most important for retention across the board is company success. And so I think that, and this was said to me by Caitlin Holloway, who's the VP of people at Reddit. She said, the best way to retain your best people is to win as a company yeah. because that's going to create company growth. It's going to make their equity more valuable. It's going to make it more exciting. It's going to draw talented people around them. And that is going to be the precursor to all these other things that are going to drive retention. And so in a certain sense, you sometimes want to make trade-offs, even from a retention perspective, that might feel bad to a person today if it's going to make the company successful because that same person is actually going to be happier in six months if the company is doing better. Totally agree. I mean, like, you can't compete on the basis of compensation. And the really best people, that's not at all what they're looking for anyway. It's the challenge and growth. Challenge like more and more complicated and important things for them to do where they have, you know, sort of an ownership mentality over the result and the company succeeding. Company succeeding is a little bit like sports where when you're winning, people tolerate a lot. And you're losing every like last flaw becomes a problem. It's like, oh my God, why do we serve this bacon today? You know, like it becomes like that kind of debate right. when, when things aren't going the well. Catch up is, you know, yeah, but <laughs> not enough. And yeah. the substantive reason um, is partially in when things are growing so fast, there's uh, it's, it's a non zero, non zero sum game in terms of finding opportun interesting opportunities for your best people because there's always something new and challenging happening. And you can't hire people from the external world fast enough to keep up with the opportunities. So you have to throw your best people at new things they've never done before and say, I trust you, like, you know, you're going to do great. And that just is really easy when the company is sort of flatlining a bit. There just aren't those opportunities. So they are zero sum. You're only giving it. You can only allocate it to one or two people and everybody else really can't grow. And so that's another reason other than the morale, emotional right. reason. I've seen tactics that people use. So one of the better CEOs in so at the Valley right now, you know, takes his top X people to dinner with one of the founders, you know, every month. And because it, sometimes it is an interpersonal thing, like for the longest time, and I, I, I see if this is still true, but for the longest time, like there was not a single person that I hired, that I personally hired that had left unless they moved across country, like literally unless their family moved across country, like there was no one that I personally hired that like quit because like you forge a relationship with the person. 
person that's per, it's personal too. It's not yeah. just like a company thing. And if, if you show that CEO level that your top 20 people that you're taking to dinner, that you actually you know, know what they're working on, you know what they care about, you know how well they're doing, and you're helping them problem solve, they're more likely to ignore that stupid recruiter right. you know, that's whispering you know, goals yeah. in their ear. So one of the one of the sort of things I've tried to champion, and you know, I I've, I know that I've heard you talk about this before, is like how do we work on sort of the diversity problem in tech? Yeah. And one of the one of my strongly held beliefs about diversity is that you need to prove to companies why it's in their interest right. to be diverse. Like you, it's not enough to just ask people to be sort of you know doing this because they feel that they ought to. But if you can show people, you're going to have better employer retention if right. you are, have a more diverse workplace. And this is diversity across every sort of yeah. dimension. But I think that that is, and this is something that, you know, Sarah from the CEO of the Lever talks about yeah. a lot. Is it actually makes cultures a lot more enjoyable to be at and it retains top talent and that has a huge impact. So I think there's also cultural construction things that you can do to make your company an enjoyable place for people to this work. This is one area that where software and I think, you know, um, one of the original sort of hypotheses, like behind Lattice and there's room for lots of improvement. There is a lot of software that's designed for recruiting. You know, there's different yep. products. I'm an investor in several that you can use to recruit talent. There's very limited software around assessment of the word investor came in this great company called Pymetrics, which mm-hmm. does empirically based um, assessment that a lot of companies are now using. There's almost nothing that really sort of manages your talent like successfully and leads to retention and is designed to really do that. Which if you think about all the time and energy you put into assembling this great team, yeah. they're, they're leveraging the team and retain and keeping the team together, you know, is a pretty big black hole. And so there's a lot of room for improving that through software. Yeah. That's like, a, and that, that's the main thing that we believe that performance management ought to do is instead of being like, how can the company evaluate all of its employees to see who's good, who's bad, and then let's do some Jack Welch type of distribution and whatever. Our whole thing is that if you can make it serve the employee and give them those things that we talked about, like growth and showing them that people around them care, that has a much bigger impact on your bottom line because you're going to retain good people. Yeah, but to fuse this all together, I remember in the very beginning of Square when I joined, we were, we were struggling hiring what I would have called proto founders or entrepreneurial types and ownership and people with ownership mentality or Jack would call just entrepreneurs. And we just weren't closing them at the same rate. They were closing other types of candidates. And so we sat down and said, what do we do about it? And we decided to embrace the philosophy that we would tell candidates of that type that is perfectly fine if they wanted to stay at Square for two years. Like we weren't going to fight it. They were going to start their own company. Great. You're welcome. But it's my, and what I would actually say to the candidate is it's my job to make this place so interesting and the growth so high that you won't leave. And if I, and if you want to leave, it's because I'll fail at my job, not because you failed at yours. And then what we put in place was a set of mentoring programs designed to take the most high potential people and really give them access to ways of growing that they wouldn't have been able to get at other companies. And we did a combination of different things. We didn't have you know, software back then, but we were using like human yep. techniques to sort of offset that. And it actually worked pretty well. And I think you can do that and replicate that and software will certainly allow you to scale that. And you've always been very deliberate about how you mentor people in and outside of the company, finding people who you know, haven't been evaluated yet or been evaluated poorly and saying, I'm going to bet on you and yep. we're going to do something long-term. Yeah. I mean, coming back to my first week of PayPal, I mean, the famous, you know, sort of the story I tell a lot is my first week there, I went 
you know, sort of a jog through Stanford campus with Peter, and he was more, mostly interested in how, what I thought of the first week and my observations, kind of a typical, you know, your first week orientation kind of thing, uh, session with the CEO. But from that lesson of like, you've got to find undiscovered talent, you've got to get proficient at evaluating them and recruiting them and closing them. Yeah, sorry, I was trying to apply that for 15 years. And then I had this other epiphany that there's two choices. You can either hire really stellar people or you learn to be a great manager. And one's really hard, and that's to be a great manager. Learning to hire people that you can just kind of say, oh, go, go find a solution. Health a lot easier, right. a lot more fun in some ways than being a great manager. Putting this all together. Also, one thing I know you think about a lot, Keith, is is stress and the benefits of, of stress. Mm-hmm. And one thing I know you think a lot about, Jack, is, is mental health. So one application of that is the cognitive dissonance of when you're not crushing it. <laughs> and maybe you were crushing because even companies that are crushing it are not crushing it forever, right? Are you – and you're trying – we said winning solves all problems. But what happens when you're not winning and you're trying to keep your great people? Are you letting them know that you're not winning and – that stress actually has a lot of benefit, you know, rise up to the challenge. Are you not as you're saying we're, you know, we're still figured out. Like, are you not as transparent? How do you sort of think about this cognitive bias or dissonance rather when you're not killing? I haven't read the stress book yet, but I hear good things about it. <laughs> so, I mean, so for, from my experience, there's, there's good kind of stress and there's bad kind of stress. And I don't actually know what this book is about, but I really right. do want to read it. But sure. I do know that from my own experience, there's a certain type of stress I have that's paralyzing and a certain type that is motivating. And I think that you, there's a real difference between those two and finding the type of stress that is motivating, which you can find in different ways, I actually think is required to be at peak output. Like, I don't think when I'm relaxed that I'm at my peak output, like I'm recharging and I'm getting, you know, ready for the next, you know, it's like the sort of the resting that you do in between, you know, exercising. But to me, I'm not at my best when I'm super calm. Um, and I imagine that a lot of other people are also not. I mean, there are certain times when that Zen is good, but I don't, I don't shy away from all stress. I think that there's a certain type that is productive and, and unproductive. So it's sort of from first principles, I think it's really important to be transparent. So the company... Is, Even when you're... Yeah, struggling. especially, actually, especially, especially when things definitely. aren't going well. I think it's easy to be transparent when everything's going well. <laughs> we made a billion dollars today. Everybody loves us. Our customers are renewing. Yeah. You know, we closed these three candidates. Everything's great. The thing you forget is you're the, all the people that work with you are adults, and they're there to make it better. Yeah. And they're not going to internalize the stress the same way as you. And so if you can say, we're not doing well, and here's why. Everybody wants to help. Like, yeah. nobody yeah. wants to They don't know how to help, and they may be doing directly wrong things, actually. They don't understand the total context. So I think by problem solving, the only way you get joint problem solving is to share the information. And I think it's a really important step. And then people also trust you. They're more willing to stay. All these other things, you know, sort of cascade. Um, so I think when you when your first instinct, things are bad and I should hide it, is the most important time to be transparent. You'll naturally want to be transparent when everything's awesome. Then from there, the book we're alluding to is called The Upside of Stress by Kelly McDougall. She's a professor at Stanford. Totally worth reading. I think it will change people's lives. It is not that dissimilar to Jack's point, though. I mean, you should still read the book. But fundamentally, it's your mental attitude towards stress that dictates the outcome. And she shows this empirically across people's health, across their performance, control is for every possible variable. And it shows that how, you, how you're taught to think about stress even at the hormonal level and the bloodstream level will actually affect how your body performs. And so by embracing the challenge and thinking of stress as a good thing that forces you to do your best work, you actually perform better than thinking of it's like, right. oh my God, I got stress. That's terrible. Yeah, yeah. the time feels right. Perhaps we'll close on this. So if you follow Keith on Twitter, you'll know some of his thoughts about work-life balance. And 
I know he just gave a talk at Lattice that uh, caused you guys to spend three days discussing what, what you guys think about work-life balance. Where did you guys net out? Not everybody netted out the same, and and I think that's okay, actually. The way that we've worked at Lattice it has been high focus and work hard enough, but I actually don't want a culture where everybody's working 100-hour work weeks. And that doesn't mean that that is the thing that leads to the most success. doesn't mean that I myself am not going to choose to work that much. But I don't want to create a work environment as a personal decision of like my full utility and value sort of set. I've, not, I've decided that I don't want to build a company where the expectation is that you're there till 11 every night and that you're there most weekends. And for me, that's been because I want people to be in it for 10 years and I want them to be happy and engaged. And I think different people can put in a different number of hours and be happy. And so I, you know, at least tell myself that I'm doing it because it is a sort of long-term view where I want people to be happy and in it. And I want their full selves when they're there. And I want people to be, you know, I want people to be with us for a long time. I don't know that that is the most value creating thing, but it's just the way that we've chosen to build the company. Now, there are people at Labs who think that we should all be working harder. There are people at Labs who think we should probably be working less hard. And I'm kind of okay with that tension, but that's sort of where we sort of netted out from like our own cultural perspective. Keith, you buy this bullshit? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I'm in part. I mean, I, I do think that like every founder and every executive team and every culture should decide for themselves. But there are, there are real trade-offs. Right. There is a correlation, and it's not a perfect correlation, between effort and outcome, like in any field, actually. The artists who produce the most work tend to be the ones people in history remember. It's not accidental that people remember, like Edison and various other authors, because they tend to produce the most work, and a, couple, a small fraction of their work becomes famous and you know, world-class. Um, I think too many people are taught that you can get outcomes without sacrifice and I think there's always trade-offs and there's nothing wrong with deciding what the trade-offs you want to make are as long as you're self-aware but but there are real trade-offs it's like if you want to be on the, the, the metaphor I've been using recently is you want to be on the cover of men's health there isn't a substitute to eating well and working out and you have to do both actually like you can work out all day long but if, if you're not on a very precise diet you're not going to be on the cover of men's health and there's some genetic components, but you can even design around that with the right you know, diet and the right discipline. So it depends what your goal in life is. Many people would never want to be on the cover of men's health, and they think that's stupid. Like, why would you ever care? But if, you, if your goal was that's what you were, was important to you, then you have to make the concomitant decisions. Or, you know, I had a friend um, who's an Olympic gymnast. From the time you're, like, roughly right. three years old or four years old to the time you're at least 13, you aren't doing anything else except training and go to school, and maybe skipping school and training. Right. And that's just it. And if you don't want to be an Olympic gymnast, that's fine. But if you want to be an Olympic gymnast, and that's the most important thing in your life, you cannot have other priorities. Yeah. And so I think a lot of life is that way, is deciding what your priorities are, and then reverse engineering backwards from that, how do you allocate your time? But there are fields in which are, there are clear tournaments, and you're competing against you know, so many people, and, and you, know, you know what you need to do. And the other fields where it's sort of emerging, and maybe you're one of the only people doing what you're doing. Yes, that's more about yeah, no, there, well, there is, yeah, there's clearly zero-sum fields, but startups, to be specific, until you sort of erect either a barrier, a network effect, or an invert product push and pull, every last bit of heroic effort sort of really does work. Now, at some point, you become the default buy. Like everybody has to have this database. Let's say it's Oracle for a while. Or you have a network effect. Let's say Facebook. 
you can actually, or Google in its own, in a different way, has network effect, particularly around um, the advertising network effect. You can actually work a lot less and still have the same outcome for at least a long period of time. Now, if you're starting from scratch, though, you're going to, let's say, want to compete with Google or you want to build some phone and compete with Apple. Good luck not having people that are working very, very hard and are very talented. The other point I made, you know, as I said, this is the idea that you can work smart and not hard. I just think that is totally fiction right. because that's basically saying I'm going to be smarter than everybody else in the world, which is completely arrogant. Like the idea that you're going to have 160 plus IQ and everybody else is stuck at 140 and that's going to be how you win is insane. First of all, it's empirically unlikely to be true and yep. then B, it just doesn't work that way. It's actually the only really important thing I learned as a lawyer because throughout my academic career, Things were pretty easy for me, like, you know, Stanford, Harvard yeah. Law and stuff like that. But when I became a professional lawyer, our goal was to be the best lawyers in the world and to be perfect. And there was no way to do that with also not working the same hours that people who went to third tier law schools right. were working because it would show up in the work product. And mm -hmm. you could tell, and my partners could tell, and my, even sometimes clients could tell if I wasn't really willing to put in the hours. Now, it's not accidental. I left the practice of law after building 365 hours. So there are, you know, you have to decide what the key uh, levers are in your profession and do they align with what your, you know, sort of values are, priorities are. Maybe just to articulate a couple points that I think are not refuting this idea, but right. that add color to it, I think, that, you know, I, that I was, have been reflecting on. We'll close on that. Yeah, yeah. So one of the points is... Not everything, not every role has linear outcomes with more work. So, for example, like a great physicist might only work four hours a day and win, you know, a Nobel Prize or something like that versus, you know, a sort of more rote role. Um, or, you know, you might even argue, and I probably would argue that in the early days of starting a startup, I would argue that more hours probably does correlate to more success. So one point is first that not every role, hours is the main input. So I don't know, you might know better than me, but I don't know if the if the top VCs work huge numbers of hours a week or if they have a lot of time for reflection and thinking and decompressing and networking and whatever else. So I don't actually know, but I would be... I'd be surprised if the average seed stage investor was grinding from 9 a.m. to midnight, seven days a week. I don't really think that's how it works. Yeah, probably so, not. <laughs> and, and I don't know that that would lead to success. So that's one point. Another point is different people have different amounts of like what they can tolerate for different periods of time. So some people might be able to work 90 hours a week for 20 years. And like that's probably a huge competitive advantage. But some people also would burn out after a year and need to like yep. go travel the world. And that person would be much more successful over a 10-year time right. horizon if they worked a normal amount and just did what they knew they could do. So some of it also is knowing your own sort of limits. Yeah, and also recognizing those limits. I hear a lot of people superficially say, oh, I'd love to be like Elon. I'm like, well, then live your life like Elon. You can't like be like Elon and then work 40 hours a week. Right. Like, it's like choose, choose your goal and like don't, don't mislead yourself or your family right. or your friends about what your goal actually is. Or your investors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Keith needs to go to Barry's Bootcamp. I think I may have <laughs> cut, it, cut it short. Speaking of work, you guys have put on a clinic on all things people management. Thank you for, for joining the Village Thanks Podcast. For it's been fantastic. Thanks.